The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Donald Trump called the stimulus slash COVID relief bill a disgrace. A disgrace! Ridiculously low. And he floated a new figure. I am asking Congress to amend this bill and increase the ridiculously low $600 to $2,000 or $4,000 for a couple. $6,000 for a thruple, $8,000 for a quadruple. At this point, we're talking commune. Also, we could do the multiplication by two math. Pelosi's into it. She is so into it. McConnell brushed off the idea just scoffed into his neck in a droll baritone and thought, I can't wait until this chucklehead is out of my life. What? 2,000 now. Now he says 2,000. Why not say it before? If he really wanted more, he could have said, I want more. He might have gotten more. And if he had gotten more, it might have helped him win the election. People love those $600 checks with the big Trump signature on them. Or did he calculate that really advocating for more would anger Republicans and hurt his chances in the election? Or is this all just a post hoc bluff to get the benefit of being seen as munificent while actually being parsimonious? All I know is this. The old guy still got it. Had tipped the press box. See, I thought he'd just spend the last three weeks in office doing hot but doing squat. But no. He injected some last-minute bizarreness into an extremely tortuous process that he had little interest in at any point. Pure Trump. His party caught flat-footed. The opposition enthused, but maybe more confused. None of it makes sense. Daddy Chaos is coming down the chimney with a big bag of... It's rattlesnakes! And he is at the center of it all, and his whims must be attended to. Yay! It is the holiday season, and his holiday is, of course, you know this, right? He celebrates Mestivus. It's like Festivus, but it's a giant mess. It's all airing of grievances, and it's permanent. It's not seasonal. And the Mestivus poll is, of course, the Rasmussen poll, the others being very dishonest polls. We don't know if by it's a disgrace, Trump means he is going to veto or pocket veto the bill. Both measures could have real, even dire consequences. But when he says disgrace, I think we got to take it seriously. Here is a man who means what he says and says what he means. Actually, that is very much untrue. And it's not just the lies in terms of not meaning what he says. It's the words. Not always the best words. Which brings me to remembrances of things Trump. In this remembrances of things Trump, I want to remember another president, a couple before Trump. His name was George W. Bush, and some people said he wasn't so smart. I don't know if that was fair, but he definitely said some words wrong, nuclear instead of nuclear. We all thought that was funny and maybe a little embarrassing, and my former boss, Jacob Weisberg, collected them all in a book or two and made a little bit of money on the premise. It tickled people. I would like to tell you that if Donald Trump were a solemn, dignified, smart, dutiful, kind, earnest, well-intentioned man, if you wiped away all his impeachable offenses and also the ones that he actually was impeached over and just left him with the words, like a very fine, well-meaning, maybe even capable president, but he said the words that he does say, if we were just left to ponder his infelicity with speech, he would be, I don't know, 
10 to 20 times more ridiculous than George W. Bush? (laughs) So in this remembrance of things Trump, no dire threat to democracy, no egregious policy position, no maddening lies, just some silly shit Trump said or couldn't say. April 2019. I hope they now go and take a look at the oranges, the oranges of the uh, uh, investigation, the beginnings of that investigation. You look at the origin of the investigation. Here, talking up the features of a national park, August 2020. When they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias. Here he is trying to say anonymous in September of 2018. The latest act of resistance is the op-ed published in the failing New York Times by an anonymous, really an anonymous, gutless coward. Anonymous turned out to be Homeland Security official Miles Taylor. If Trump thinks the New York Times was going to misgender an official just to maintain anonymity, he doesn't understand the media or wokeness as much as he says he does. So Trump once called Thailand, Thailand, and he spoke of Minneapolis often. And then there was this one delightful example that did not get as much attention as the other ones, because in this one, he didn't actually speak the words into a microphone. It was a secondhand account, but a credible one. It's a delight. I hadn't actually remembered it. That's why we bring you remembrances of things Trump. Here's CNN's national security correspondent, John Walcott, speaking with anchor Brooke Baldwin. Well, they're a combination of things. Uh, The first one is the president's ignorance. And that that goes to the point about thinking that Nepal and Bhutan, which incidentally he also mispronounced as nipple and button, uh, are part of India, which they're not. Wait, seriously? Uh, That's what he said? Seriously. Button and nipple. Is that some peculiar English delicacy or cockney rhyming slang? A little butter and nipple, sir? Oh, wow, that was horrible. I know, I know you know that. Maybe, maybe butter and nipple are diminutive cartoon helpers in the Trump family fun hour. And who's that, boys and girls, coming to help us as we close the border? It's button and nipple. Hey, guys. Hey, Donald. I see you're wearing three shirts. Have you been helping Uncle Steve Bannon? He got arrested on a boat. Sorry, sorry. I spin these scenarios in an effort to try to explain, an attempt to understand, but mostly in the task that is remembrances of things Trump. On the show today, I spiel about the not ordeal, the strangely heartening experience of waiting for hours in the cold to get a COVID test, what it means for Christmas. But first, the Georgia Senate races will be held, the runoff will, on January 5th. And if the Democrats, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, beat their Republican incumbent challengers, that could or would decide control of the Senate. The problem is Ossoff trailed David Perdue in November, and Warnock got 36% of the vote, which was the most in his race, but if you combine the totals of the two main Republicans, they beat that by 13 points. The questions are, will a half a billion dollars of mostly negative ads change the race? Will the notion among some Republicans that the presidential race was stolen affect things? Will I discuss this all with Bill Nygut, host of Georgia Public Broadcasting's Political Rewind? That is a short, and it's up next.
On January 5th, American electoral history will be made. A runoff election for both Senate seats. The state is obviously Georgia. And here to talk about the state of election in Georgia is Bill Nygut. He is the host of the Political Rewind Show on Georgia Public Radio. Thanks again for joining me, Bill. Good to be with you again, Mike. So what do the polls say? And bonus extra question Do you regard the polls differently than you did a few weeks ago, given how inaccurate they were in states other than Georgia during the election? Clearly, the polling across the country was, uh, once again, terribly flawed. Right now, we have one, in fact, I've got news for you, because we have one brand new poll that comes from uh, Survey USA, which is, a, I think you probably know, Mike, a pretty reliable pollster. 538 gives them uh, good scores. And mm-hmm. it's a very interesting poll for a couple of reasons. One, it shows both Democratic Senate candidates leading their Republican opponents. Survey USA has John Ossoff with a 51 to 46 percent lead over incumbent Senator David Perdue, elected incumbent Senator David Perdue, which is up a couple of points. He was, their last poll, it was 50-48. So Ossoff has gained mm-hmm. one, but Perdue has dropped. And in the other race, the appointed U.S. Senator, Kelly Leffler, is uh, losing to uh, Raphael Warnock, 52-45. to 45. But beyond that, Mike, here's the other thing that's interesting about this. Survey USA also found what we've been seeing on the ground here, which is the fight over whether the November 3rd election was fraudulent, stolen for the president or for Joe Biden here in Georgia and across the country has really, really hurt Republicans here. There's a significant percentage of Republicans who call themselves very conservative who told Survey USA they are not going to vote because they know the fix is already in. So we've been watching this phenomenon in which Republicans are saying, no way we're going to turn out. This is a fraudulent election. And it's hurting them. Right. So on the one hand, you could understand why they would say that. On the other hand, if you are extremely conservative to follow that advice to the end of its logic or maybe the end of the cliff is to give away control of the Senate to Democrats. That's one thing. And for another thing, we are talking about this advice through the prism of a poll. And who knows, who knows if those very conservatives are playing with the pollsters, not picking up their phone, lying to pollsters. I really don't know. Yeah, we, you're, you're completely right. We don't know. But I do think we know one thing, Mike. Uh, just intuitively and anecdotally, of course. And that is that in this state, I think right now, Republican voters are more concerned about the future of the presidency because they believe that Donald Trump is still making a valiant effort to overturn the results of the election. And I think there's more of a focus on that among a vast number of Republican voters than there is on whether Kelly Leffler, who they don't know at all, I mean, Mm -hmm. she's been an unknown quantity to them. And David Perdue, who, you know, they know. But but I think they're much more concerned right now about President Trump's fate than about Leffler and Perdue's fate. That doesn't mean they won't vote. But I do think their focus is on Trump, not on the Senate candidates. Yes, and another bizarre aspect of that is you're pointing to a group, maybe a small group, but a determinative group of conservatives who so love Donald Trump 
that they will reject his imploring them to vote for the two Republicans. He's come down to Georgia. He said he endorsed them. He wants them to vote for these people. No, we love you so much. We're not doing that. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're not expecting logic out of these people, are you, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> not once. Yes. Not the, lo- not the logic that a simple mind like mine, a, a basic mind like mine can understand. Here's the other thing that's uh, creating chaos for Georgia Republicans right now. Uh, and it, and you're aware of this, I, I know, is that the internal war among uh, state Republican leaders has grown increasingly intense, partly because of the way Trump has been tweeting angrily at uh, the governor, Brian Kemp. But it's also creating uh, divisions within the party in terms of the ambitions of other Republicans in the 2022 cycle. So by that, I mean... When President Trump tweets angrily at Kemp, what he often also says is he hopes Doug Collins will primary Kemp in 2022. You also have a situation where the lieutenant governor, Jeff Duncan, who's gotten some national attention because he has said, look, the election is over. Joe Biden won. Republicans, we got to come together. There's now a war among the Trumpite Republicans, and it looks like Jeff Duncan might get a challenge from the chairman of the Republican Party here, David Schaefer, who ran against him two years ago. So it's beyond just Leffler and and the Senate race and the other race as well. It's this infighting among Republicans who are positioning themselves for 2022 and taking away from the energy of talking about getting voters out to the polls. Yeah. So let's talk about history and what happens between a general election and a runoff when they do have them in Georgia or when they have had them in the past. Generally, what? Republicans gain? Turnout is better for Republicans in runoffs comparatively than it is general elections? Republicans have, in statewide runoff races, always won. One of the classic examples that is worth pointing to is a race in 1992, which, of course, is an interesting year uh, considering where we're at right now. 1992 is the last year that a Democratic presidential candidate won the state of Georgia. That was, of course, Bill Clinton uh, until this election. So in 1992, you had an incumbent Democratic senator named Weich Fowler, who ended up in a runoff with a Republican, a popular Republican among Republicans in the state, and a moderate Republican named Paul Coverdale. They ended up in a runoff. That election took place back then. It was three weeks after the general election. President-elect Clinton came to Georgia, held a huge rally in Macon for the Democrat, White Fowler, urging people to get out to vote But Fowler got beaten fairly significantly by the Republican Paul Coverdale, despite the president-elect's intervention in the race. And the reason is because Republicans traditionally have turned out for runoff elections and Democrats haven't. We had another one in 2008 with a runoff for a Senate seat. And once again, the uh, Republican beat the Democrat by a substantial margin. That's changed this time, we think. But history is on the Republican side. It does suggest this is the Republicans' election to lose. Yeah. 
Was that the key part of the 92 race, or was it the jingle, put Paul Coverdale in the Senate, <laughs> kick White Fowler out? I am really <laughs> impressed that you know that jingle. You're right. That jingle, Margie Lopp wrote that jingle, and uh, you're right. It became ubiquitous, and it catapulted Paul Coverdale into a position of recognition that he'd never had before. It's great fun that you remember that. And it was it also epitomized a time when maybe politics wasn't an oppressive horror show where every commercial break was just a collection of calumnies against the opponent and every trip to the mailbox was dreaded because you'd get the eighth, ninth or twelfth version of the same flyer. I mean, the tone of the election from afar, I'm just monitoring it from what I see from afar, seems to be entirely free of issues and entirely based on the vilification of the other guy or in Warnock's case, the other gal. Yeah, I mean, it's been horrendous TV ad campaign. By the way, though, uh, it's interesting that you point to that 92 race and say, well, it wasn't as bad then as it is now. And I think you're correct to some extent. But guess who? But who was looming on the horizon then, Mike? And Newt already Gingrich. practicing those tactics. Yeah. Newt Gingrich, who two years later, of course, took control of the United States House for the first time in 40 years using the same kind of smear tactics that are being used in the uh, Senate race here. Yeah, this race, as you know, we're close to half a billion dollars in spending on just ads. We're not talking about flyers. We're not talking about uh, people who are sitting in banks doing text messaging and getting paid for that. Just ads alone, we're going to be at half a billion dollars before this is over. It's it's uh, really, as you know, it's, it, you cannot turn on TV without seeing the ads wall to wall to wall. You sort of long for the days when a used car salesman will come on the air and start shouting at you about a new Chevy that you can pick up at his place. You mean Mr. Toyota? You mean that little dog? Excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I do want to, Mike, I will tell you, I think there's no reason in the world that we can't fairly objectively say that the third-party ads, especially the pack ads from Leffler and Purdue, for them are wildly, wildly offensive in the uh, misleading information, the lies that they're telling about the Democrats. I mean, the, the Democratic PACs are doing some of that as well, but I do think that we're seeing the Republican PACs really more than ever adopt a scorched earth policy in trying to win this race. Yes. From what I've seen, the PAC ads against Warnock have essentially portrayed him as, you know, a radical cleric bent on the destruction of American society, when in fact, it seems he has a fairly effective counter message, which is not just, no, I'm not, but a few months ago, when Kelly Leffler spoke at my church, you talked about how pleased you were to be there. Yeah, yeah. I think that you can look at Warnock from several different points of view on this. First of all, his history as a pastor, the sermons that he's given, does provide rich material to examine and decide whether he has made comments that are worthy of critical scrutiny. And, and he has, to some extent, on occasion done that. And certainly Republicans are using it against him. 
Warnock came back from a trip to Israel and the West Bank and was extremely critical of Israel and was uh, all in for Palestinian rights. Now, that position is perfectly fine. There was no modulation of it at the time. It wasn't very nuanced. And now he's being hammered by the ads uh, condemning him for that. The problem with that is he went on to have a, establish a very close relationship with one of the most important rabbis in Metro Atlanta, a guy named Peter Berg, and Peter talked him down from the cliff. And they became close friends and allies. And in the years that came after uh, some of these sermons in which Warnock is now being attacked by the Republicans, he in fact modulated his position. He has a very close working relationship with uh, the, the Atlanta Jewish community. And it's incredibly offensive to, I think, see um, this effort to divide Jews over the issue of Israel, because we all know that the Jewish community is not necessarily united on how Israel treats the Palestinians. And I found that particularly offensive. Yeah. So that is fair game to some extent. It is not the obligation of an opposing campaign to point out your changes of heart or put your incendiary comments in context. But I'd also like to point out that ad, the one you called personally very offensive, that's among the best uh, most high-minded anti-Warnock ads. Yeah, I get it. You're, you're right. I mean, look, it's it's fair game to go after what your opponent said five, ten years ago. From my point of view, it's a larger question. The black and Jewish communities in Atlanta particularly have a long history of really having found a way to work with each other very constructively, very positively. They have overcome decades, as you can understand, of bigotry and hatred that each side has endured and that they've uh, aimed at each other. And they work together very closely now. And Warnock ends up being an example of of one of those uh, African-Americans who's figured out how to do that. So I, I'm, from my point of view, it isn't as if it isn't fair for them to attack him on the basis of things he might have said sometime back. It's my personally personal feelings, as a Jew, by the way, uh, that it, it offends me uh, to see my community being pushed to uh, perhaps not have the same warm feelings about the black community that I've had for a long time. Yeah, yeah. So one way of thinking about it is the more the runoff looks like the general, the more likely it is that the results will reflect the general. The complication is I don't know what the, I, I think I can interpret that in the one race between Purdue and Ossoff where Purdue was only, I think, what, point zero point two eight away from locking it up in the general election. Yes. But with the other race, Warnock beat Loeffler handily, but Doug Collins was in the race, so you could look at it like Republicans got a big percent of the vote in that election. Yeah, that's exactly right. You can't really make that same comparison with the Loeffler-Warnock <coughs> race as you can with Purdue and Ossoff. Purdue got, what, 90-plus thousand votes more than Ossoff did? But there, there's this conventional thinking in Georgia that uh, finishing first in a runoff, it puts you in a bad position, that typically being in second place is better because you 
you assume you have room to grow your vote, whereas if you've placed first and just haven't quite made the 50% plus one, you've already tapped out uh, the voters who are there for you. And who, who knows? Here's something, Mike, that's really crucial that Democrats are particularly excited about. Since the um, general election, we've had, and I don't have the exact <clears throat> number in front of me, but something uh, somewhere around 75,000 newly registered voters. You're allowed in Georgia to register for the runoff, even if you haven't voted in the general. And we know that the overwhelming percentage of those new registrants are young people. Georgia, by the way, was one of the states where young people voted at much higher percentages on November 3rd uh, than they did across the country. So Democrats feel very encouraged that that new registrant pool is enough to give them both races. Who knows? So if I had to make an assessment of what will happen The hurdle I have in thinking that Ossoff will beat Purdue, specifically in that race, is the following. Georgia is not a Democratic state. Yes, Joe Biden won by 12,000 votes, but that seems very much driven by people's opinion of Donald Trump specifically. And throughout the country, the dynamic was Republicans down ballot doing better than Donald Trump did, and also maybe even a desire to literally have a check on out-of-control or the perception of -of out-of-control Democrats. Factor into this the fact that Purdue just came so close to locking it up. I think you add all that up. It's very hard to see that Purdue doesn't retain his seat, given the dynamics of the state and the election. But I don't know. And this extra argument uh, that we talked about in the beginning, where they were saying, withhold your vote because of Donald Trump's having the election stolen— That is a huge monkey wrench in my analysis. But what do you think of my analysis so far? I have said all along that I think these two races are the Republican candidates to lose based on the same dynamics you're talking about. Georgia has been a red state. You're right. Biden won it in part, at least because of a complete disgust with Trump by the voters who were willing to come over and vote Democratic for him. There is another interesting element here. John Ossoff is a Jewish candidate. Raphael Warnock, African-American. Jews and African-Americans have such slim chances of winning statewide races in Georgia. It's astonishing if you look back over uh, the years. Um, We've elected only one black candidate statewide who hadn't been appointed to a job before then running for it. We've had one Jew elected statewide, an attorney general named Sam Olins. You've got to keep that in mind in thinking about voters across the state once you get outside metro Atlanta. You know, on the other hand, Warnock being black may encourage blacks to vote in bigger numbers than they typically do in runoffs. But their identity does matter in this race. Bill Nygut is the host of the Political Rewind radio show and podcast. If you don't live in Georgia, listen to it on podcast. It's from Georgia Public Broadcasting. It's every day. It's excellent, as you could tell by his excellence on this show today. Bill, thank you so much. Mike, I always love talking to you. You are really on top of this stuff, man. And now the spiel. The major holidays, the big ones, the ones we get time off of work for and almost all celebrate, almost all, carry with them obligations and for a lot of people, stress. 
Now, I wouldn't say I experience stress over Thanksgiving or Christmas. It's a good meal. You get some games on TV. You see family members. That can go well. Often it does go well. But the expression, the holidays are a stressful time, is more than common. It seems almost obligatory. And that was true even before these COVID-inflected times. I enjoy the little holiday-esque parts of the holiday or traditions around the holidays, maybe adjacent to, like that Friday after Thanksgiving when you're in college and you come back for the first time, or maybe after, you know, your sophomore, junior, or senior year, maybe you had two senior years. It is a night out with high school friends and you have this experience, maybe some drinking of alcohol in a bar, interacting like you do with your friends at college, but you're applying it to this group of people who you never applied it to before. It's a little weird. It's a lot of fun. I love that. That should be one of those movies with 23 different plots and 46 actors like Mother's Day or Valentine's Day. But this one should be about that post-Thanksgiving day. I mean, they clearly should not make any more of those movies at all. But, you know, they're usually good employment opportunities for famous Jessicas who don't need the money, Beale Alba. So I say, why not make one for this day? Now, the Christmas tradition I enjoy the most isn't a day. It's just part of the day of Christmas. It occurs around four o'clock in the gloaming. The presents have been unwrapped, the meal not yet eaten, but everyone starts getting interested in their presents. And the house gets quiet, and electronics are played with, and apps are downloaded, and toys are assembled. It's an intense collective moment of absorption. It says, yeah, we got a lot of stuff. Maybe we'll actually use some of it. This Christmas, I won't for the first time in my life, I think. I won't be seeing my sister or my parents. I think that is right. It's okay, we can handle the distance. But in preparation for my upcoming wedding, what I did yesterday was I went and got COVID tested. It was an hour and 45 minutes on a line outside the hospital. It was very cold, and I was struck by two thoughts. One is that if it weren't for the horrors of the pandemic necessitating such a line and the unpleasantness of the line itself and, you know, the delay in getting our goddamn act together as regards testing, there'd be a lot about that experience that was inspiring, you know but for those few caveats. Because here we all were as members of the public, this was a you know, free hospital testing opportunity, and we were waiting patiently, and we were sacrificing to know for ourselves and to know for our fellow citizens if we had the virus and if we had antibodies. And the intake people within the hospital, they were very helpful. We got different people drawing bloods for the antibody tests and a different person for the nasal swab, and they were both helpful and professional. They were great to my kids, and it was free, like I said, and they give you an app or info for an app that works really well. I got my antibody tests already. Nothing was detected, which is good. It means I never unknowingly had COVID. I never unknowingly spread it. It was just about the first communal experience I've had in nine months, other than maybe early voting. I have, of course, gone to stores. I have waited in spaced out lines at the post office. But this was a little bit of a different experience. I felt differently about it, at least. And it led me to the second of my thoughts. So, okay, if first thought was that it's a little inspirational how they're doing all this testing, second thought is this. It's the theme, together alone and alone together. During this pandemic, we have been together alone and alone together. I do a Zoom meeting every day with the GIST staff. There's a larger one with Slate in general. They do it every week. I show up every couple weeks. They do have a daily podcast. My attendance is sporadic. 
And I have Zoomed with friends and family over the last nine months, of course. So we've been together, but we've been alone together. In reality, we are separated. We are isolated. Sure, technology can put us together on a screen and we can talk and we can hear, or at least hear when someone else isn't talking, which for my family and friends is never. So it really is alone together. It's a lonely togetherness. And when I have, or when we all have been together, like, as I said, at a store or voting in November, there was really little interaction. There was mask, there was spacing, there was not time for chit-chat. Expelling air is literally a danger. You don't want to talk. So we shared an experience without being with each other. We were together, but alone. And maybe yesterday wasn't quite really so different in terms of separation that was necessitated by a line or a hospital hallway, a Q-tip up the nose. Maybe I was just in an expansive, hopeful mood, heartened by the hard work of the medical staff and the possibility of a cure on the horizon. But I did feel a little more connected to everyone around me, or in the case of the phlebotomist who did the swabbing, everyone all up in me. Have a Merry Christmas or as the atheist Muslims and Jews call it, Friday. Have a nice Friday, an above-average Friday. That's what I wish you. And with loved ones, I say get together however you can, and afterward, keep it together however you can. It will soon be a new year, a new administration, a new public health reality. I have three more shows this year, and during the downtime, you can catch up on the full back catalog of gists or whatever traditions you and your family might have as the year ends. And though it's been said many times, many ways, anemimis at Thailand, and to all a good night. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Mike. And Margaret's been eggnog-free for 16 months. She gets her eggnogless chip and the esteem of everyone here at Nogger's Anemimis. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He is actually a native Georgian. He took the day off, so my mention of beloved used car, spokes dog, Mr. Toyota, possibly fell on deaf ears because outsiders just do not understand. Shayna Roth produces The Gist, and that has been true for three days. So in that time, she has accumulated three French hens, three partridges, and six turtle doves because it's cumulative, you know. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast, and I guess she didn't go over this with Shayna in orientation, but you don't keep the turtle doves. No one keeps the turtle doves. The gist. And on the seventh day of Christmas, Trump pardoned thee. Seven vendors wands a swimming, six geese a laying, five windmills a slaying, four black water contractors, three Bannon t-shirts, two Papadopoli, and a pardon for every lackey. Oomperu depperu and thanks for listening. <laughs>